I think the most important thing is that as a coach, there's no way that you cannot care about an individual. I think that that is most probably the trait that stands out for me more than anything. You've got to care about the individual to get the best out of the individual. You are listening to a series called Leading on the Field, brought to you by none other than forwardzone.com and platform45.com. This is our third episode in that series. We've spoken to Enoch Nkwe. We had a chat with Ashley Buhai. And today we get to talk to Desiree Ellis. I didn't know much about Desiree Ellis until I saw her in a post-match interview during the Women's Soccer World Cup. I was just so struck by Desiree's poise, her credit that she gave to her team, her ability to convey her optimism and passion for her players in such a short period of time and became an instant fan. I I think this woman is a national treasure. I don't think we give her enough credit for the work that she does against all odds. She is, of course, the coach of our South African national women's football soccer team, Banyana Banyana. And she has overseen a real resurgence in that team, a a promotion of talent to overseas football leagues, us doing incredibly well in 2018 in the African Cup of Nations, qualifying for the World Cup, uh, and I think really exceeding expectations in that World Cup as well. She's, of course, like everybody else that we've spoken to in the series, had to deal with a lot of disruption over the last year. But we talk about the influences of her childhood, some of the lessons she learned growing up, the the good and bad things she's taken from various coaches throughout her journey, and uh, just a real inspiring, motivating conversation with somebody who I think deserves a lot more credit uh, than she gets. Please enjoy my conversation with Desiree Ellis. Desiree, thank you so much for taking time out of what is an increasingly busy schedule, getting back to some semblance of normality in the world. There's a disclaimer for this session right up front. In my research, I noted that that a big part of your career was spent at Spurs. And as a Tottenham Hotspur Football Club fan, I think you and I just need to take a moment of silence to commiserate about the, the current trauma that we're experiencing well, <laughs> as I'm, lovers I'm, of that I'm club. actually not a Spurs fan, by oh, the way. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then, then then it's a little bit easier. Oh, no. Really? Which red? The Old Trafford red. <laughs> That's worse. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe like Liverpool. Nah. Nah, definitely that not. That red. Okay. Sure. All right. Well, in that case, you're not feeling depressed at all. It's just uh, It's just me. Well, I won't say you alone, but uh, I think uh, the last couple of games haven't gone well. It's almost like they've gone back into a slum, but uh, we'll see what happens. To what, what an interesting season, though. I mean, no, what a, ha- what a competitive ha- Premier League season. It has been. I think uh, some clubs have gone through blips, and I think Man City has really taken the lead, and, and all of a sudden the defensive frailties are, are sorted. They look like Magic-y. they can score <laughs> almost every time they go on their mm-hmm. attack. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, we, we talk about it being an interesting season, and that's in no small part due to the fact that we've just come through this twilight year of, you know, kind of COVID restrictions and travel restrictions and so on. And I'm sure for you and for your team, with the momentum that you had coming out of 2018 and 2019, it must have been a really difficult thing to deal with. Talk to me about some of your experiences as the head, the leader of that group of people during this time. Look, it's been extremely difficult, more so for the players, when we were told that there was a possibility that the president was going to speak. Um, I got permission to go to Cape Town and I actually had to drive. 
I drove by myself, which was really scary. Down to Cape Town. Down to Cape Town. In I did one, that drive, so I can, I can, I can in one, sympathize. In one go. In not one easy. go. Yeah. Not easy at all. And, you know, immediately sat down with a fitness trainer and we looked at, um, you know, we did not know how long, obviously. Yeah. We thought a month or two. But uh, we then sat down with a fitness trainer and, um, you know, got a program going. And we knew that clubs had also given programs. But, sure. you know, we wanted to cover our bases. We just played Lesotho with a new group of players mm-hmm. and done extremely well. Mm-hmm. You know, then a month later, you know, we were still busy um, with programs. And I used to chat to players on and off. And we decided to divide the group in three because we had a core group of almost 40 players, okay. including those playing abroad as well. So we decided to give personal interaction to players. We decided to divide it in three. I took the more senior players and the overseas-based mm. players. Mm. The performance analyst, um, Shalene, took some players and the assistant coach, Tina Sonke, took some players. And we made sure that we regularly kept in contact. Yeah. Also had Zoom um, with some players that could come onto the Zoom. Sure. I took it, uh, the initiative upon myself to also be in contact with the staff. And it was the most amazing thing we could have done. You know, players were saying that... Uh, you know, we, we generally don't check up on each other, but during mm. this difficult time, it was it was really key that we stayed in contact. And once a week, the coaches would go on a Zoom and we'd talk about, you know, interacting with our different players. Mm. And at least twice a month or so, I would then go get hold of everybody. The overseas-based players, even those not in the Banyana team, I stayed in contact with them, um, you know, just to make sure that they were okay. And it was so, so welcoming and we could actually just, you know, chat to each other because Connect. some yeah. days players would say, I don't feel like training today. What am I training for? Mm. And all we said was, look, we got to make sure that we cover our bases when it's back to normal or when the green light is given that we can, you know, get back to playing. Then you need to be ready, you know. In that time also, we had a lot of players going abroad, you know, in the time um, <clears throat> because we thought some players, you know, were, were talking about, um, you know, they don't feel like training and I said, you know, it's okay because you don't yeah. feel the same every day. I mean, yeah. I was in Cape Town the whole of the early lockdown and, um, you know, sometimes you don't feel like getting out of bed. Sure. But um, you get out of bed and eventually you've got to do your work. So, you know, players, it was just good that we could connect. You know, we talk about being a team on the field. So mm. I said, let's be a team off the field. And in that way, connecting with players interacting with players, WhatsApp calling players abroad. It was just so welcoming. And I think we almost got closer together in that way. And we would regularly send out training programs and know how players where we can, uh, both uh, mentally and physically. And then we would bounce off of each other because uh, it was extremely difficult for all of us. I I imagine that, you know, in the the rhythm and routine of a typical season, there's so much contact, but not as much connection. And it sounds to me like you were having conversations that you wouldn't normally have in a season. And I mean, I think what we've all become aware of over the last year is the importance of mental health and just being able to belong to something and feeling like in the midst of all of this uncertainty and kind of directionless that I'm, I'm a part of, as you said, I'm a part of this team. This is something that stood out in your your tenure of leadership more than anything else is this strong sense of identity and culture that comes through in the Banyana team. And talk to me a little bit about how that started. And 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 is that a very natural thing for you? Have had have you had to work really hard at creating that environment? Look, I'd been um, uh, interim coach for about eighteen months as yeah. well. So before that, I was assistant coach. So I knew most. Yeah, you're a founder member <laughs> of the of the team. Yeah, exactly. I knew most of the players though, and. Um, 
you know, there was already a connection there. And um, it was just not now me being in charge and me saying do this and me saying do that. Mm. It was team effort where you got the expertise and let the experts do their job. We had a fitness trainer. We had a performance analyst. And I didn't profess to to be an expert in anything. And I think that expertise that we brought in, you know, really helps us in the long run. Yeah. And players were also... You know, given an opportunity, um, we'd sit down with senior players and we'd say, look, this is what we want to do. Or if there was something happening in camp, we'd call them in and we'd say, look, this is what's happening. What are your thoughts? You know, that's what we, we try to instill in the team, mm. uh, a winning mm. culture, but the winning culture about looking out for your, for your teammate, watching your teammates back and always being there for each other whether it's on the field or off the field. And I think that has really helped us. And like we say, we, we pride ourselves on teamwork and we've got to put that right across the board. Um, you know, just picking up the phone and asking a staff member how they're doing today, mm. et cetera, and, and making sure that we take care of each other. So it was like that from the word go. And, yeah. you know, just giving that little bit of leeway and then them giving in return as well. How do you manage the tension between creating a competitive and winning culture and also an inclusive and safe space? Because you clearly have both, and this team has advanced dramatically over the last three years under your guidance. How do you balance those things, and where, do, where does discipline come in? Look, we still strict discipline. We have, obviously, rules and regulations in the camp, and you know, uh, we hold, uh, there's an accountability. If somebody steps out of line, pull them back in type of thing. Because uh, we always say, I always say I'm not a policewoman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a coach. Yeah. Um, you guys are, are the team. If somebody doesn't do what they're supposed to be doing or stepping out of line, then you've got to pull them back in. Yeah. You know, and I think that that that's very important. And we always have a, almost a, a mentorship thing where when a, when a newer, mm. younger player comes in, that somebody takes them under their wing in a similar position and just, you know, help them along, help them along and make them feel welcome and make them feel, you know, part of the team. And I think over the last couple of years, we've had quite a lot of new caps come in and yeah. and, and really kept their place and, you know, really done well. So we've tried to install that and we've also sort of said, you know, that players need to raise their hands they need to make them more consistently and mm. they need to be remembered, you know, sure. because you can so easily be forgotten. And if you look at the players that have gone abroad, they're really starting to stand out. Yeah, you professional know, sport can be so fickle. Um, they've they've grabbed this opportunity and, you know, really, really standing out. Jermaine percent was been scoring of late. Temby's been on fire. <laughs> you know, Linda's just gotten the newcomer um, in Sweden you know, Rafael Vajani's been a regular at AC Milan. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, the players are really starting to raise their hands and grabbing opportunities. And, you know, you're almost afraid to blink because maybe there's another one going abroad. But that is through their efforts and through the hard work, you know, that they put in. And, and nobody really sees the work that they put in behind the scenes. Because when we, before we come to camp, we make sure that if we are calling a camp, you you have some player, you have a whole group, yeah. not necessarily the players that are just being called up, but the whole group. So you cover all your bases and you send out a training program to all of them. Mm. Um, and if anything happens, a player gets injured, somebody just comes in there on the same level. So we make sure that we give players an opportunity, but we also try to make sure that when they do come into camp, they're not sort of behind, yes. almost on the same level to give them an ample opportunity. But we have a great group of staff as well, um, you know, and I think that's been key, getting the right staff members, getting the right technical team and getting the right expertise. And that has really helped the team because, 
you know, each and every uh, individual in the team, the, the staff member plays just as important role as the players. And sometimes, uh, you know, they don't get the credit that they deserve, but uh, we all know that the work that gets put in, and I always give credit because, yes, I'm the coach of the team, and if the team doesn't do well, then I'm the one on the red carpet. Yeah. But yeah. you've got to give credit to the work that's put in behind the scenes, and nobody really sees that. Yeah, 100%. I want to get back to that because that's an important point around accountability and the spotlight of, of your role. But I want to talk first about, you know, we talk a lot on the show about whether leaders are born or made. And I think, I haven't answered that well yet, but I think it's a bit of both. I think I think it's a combination, somewhere in the middle. You clearly were blessed with natural leadership uh, skills and traits, but who has influenced your idea or your ideas or your philosophy of leadership over the years? If you think right back to you know the early parts of your career, um, your professional career and, and now uh, in management positions? Look, uh, my parents obviously um, mm. set great values. My father always, uh, when I was a player, he was always not happy with my performance. <laughs> he was always pushing me, but he wasn't only my biggest critic, he was also my biggest fan. Sure. And I think that that was really important that, you know, I had this push from behind, I had this drive from behind, and that was important. And I know there's a lot of players out there that don't have that because yeah. parents maybe have more than one job or a single parent that's not yeah. able to push uh, and give support from behind. And we as coaches then become that parent, you know. And then I've had a lot of coaches along the way. I've taken a little bit of each and every coach. Mm. I remember the first coach I had uh, or the coach I had that really stood out for me. He's since passed on, you know, Tony Wilson. Mm. Um, I remember we, we had training and training's over and we got to take a couple of free kicks and he makes me kick until I get it right. And the next day, you know, I can't get my shoe on because my foot is so sore. <laughs> so but uh, he really, you know, really pushed and drove. And I've had a couple of coaches al- along the way in the national team. You know, Coach Shakes Mashaba was a good motivator. Yeah. You'd come to, to training in the morning and then he'd ask you, um, did you contact your family at home? How's the family doing? How are you doing? You know, Fran Hilton-Smith I've known for a very, very long mm, time as mm. a player, um, as an opponent, and also, um, you know, very disciplined, mm. um, but giving you the, the space to be able to develop yourself, you know, I, I, and other coaches at, at club level. And, and obviously, you know, you, we, we PSL coaches, you look at certain things and traits that they have and you, yes. you grab a little bit of everyone to, and, and take what you feel is, is necessary for the way you want to run things. And then you also, you know, then I worked with, um, with Coach Vera. And if I was a player when, when she was a coach, I would have been a much better player. Oh, wow. <laughs> I would have been attention to detail, which, um, you know, I'd never experienced before, um, yes. you know, when you take set pieces, who stands on the near post, who stands on the on the far post. Who's More scientific and analytical approach. A very yeah. uh, certain players would pick up certain players, the opponents for headers, mm. etc. When we take free kicks, um, who does this, who does that. So, so very, very detailed in that way and very meticulous. I remember during preparations for Olympics, we had... Uh, I got the weekend off and those some players were allowed to fly or go home mm. and those that had to fly to pay for themselves because it was just mm. a weekend off and, you know, we went to Coach Vera's place and that whole weekend we just watched games of the opponents. Oh, wow. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, going and to the analyzed, Olympics, yeah. we had over 100 games of opponents that we were going to play, like really, really meticulous, playing against average opponents. So I picked up from her and the work ethic, you know. Mm. There was never a moment that you would be resting. That for me was was one of the traits and 
when I look at coaches that I haven't even met, I look at Alex Ferguson, um, a little bit of Jose Marino, of course, yeah, yeah. Jurgen Klopp. There's so so many coaches that you pick up a little bit from and and then try to use that and Emulate see that, and yeah. see if that if that actually can work for us because we are a different country to everyone else. Of course, you know our situation is different and. Uh, our climate's different, and every, everything is different. different our players, our yeah. players come from different backgrounds, and, and that is that is the most difficult if you don't understand the background and the mm-hmm, culture. Mm-hmm. So, so over the years, you would have assimilated bits and pieces, as you say. But I'm sure there's also something that's uniquely Desiree about your approach. What would your players say is your unique strength as a leader and a coach and a manager in the team? They say I'm a very soft person. I'm <laughs> very soft-spoken, but I think that shouldn't be a, a weakness. It is just Not at all. Yeah. a characteristic. And I think sometimes people take advantage of me being um, sort of soft-hearted. But, There's that um, great quote in American Gangster that says the loudest person in the room is the weakest person in the room. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I support that assertion. You yeah. know, but uh, I think the most important thing is that as a coach, there's no way that you cannot care about an individual. Mm, I mm. think that that is most probably the trait that stands out for me more than anything You've got to care about the individual to get the best out of the individual. Um, you've got to know sometimes a player will come to training and the player's not feeling well, but, you know, the player's able to tell you, coach, I have this problem at home or this mm. is happening or that is happening. And we've kept it open like that. And we've sort of kept it open that if you're not okay in speaking to me about it, you mm. can go to the assistant coach. You can mm. go to the analyst. You're quite comfortable to speak to any staff member that will mm. then come and, you know, uh, pass on the message. And if it's really important that we bring you in and sit down and see how we can help, um, you know, then we've done that. Um, also giving players an opportunity. It's been very important. Um, I say raise your hand and you will get an opportunity. And you've got to be true to that, you know. Sure. And I've tried to stay as, as true to that as as, as I could. And in and the way we play, We've, we stay true to who we are mm-hmm. as, a, as footballers. We're not a, a nation of tall players. Mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. And we've try, stayed true to, to all of that. And yes. it, it's just about teamwork and making sure that I don't go into the analyst's work because she's the expert. Mm-hmm. The fitness trainer, he's the expert. But it's not that I don't know those roles. I let them play their part. And through that, we have regular interaction. The same with the players as well. The same with the players. We'll sit down with players and try and help where we can and and so forth. Great podcasts don't happen without great guests and great guests don't happen without great partners. This show wouldn't be possible without the help of Forward Zone. Find them at forwardzone.com. They're a global sports management specialist with a core focus on strategic consulting, experiential activations, and of course, talent management. And then Platform 45, who's come on board to sponsor a couple of episodes now. They're a software company. They're data-driven, design-thinking problem solvers, just like my guests. And they've done work for fintech startups, mining giants, pioneering entrepreneurs, and telecoms, amongst others. We thank them so much for their support. Please go check out their websites at forwardzone.com and platform45.com and enjoy the rest of the show. I suppose it's easy to forget as a fan um, sitting on your couch at home when you look at these superstars, global superstars playing, playing sport that many of them are 
baby still. I mean, really, totally. I have this thing where if I'm watching sport, I, I still struggle to understand how those people are younger than me. Because I guess when you watch as much sport as I did growing up, everybody was always older and you were always working towards that age. Um, and now, now I'm definitely older than all of them, twice as old in some cases. But it's easy to forget that these are human beings and they're young human beings. And as you said, depending on what uh, opportunities and privileges they were presented with growing up, what academies they were exposed to, what leadership they were exposed to, it's going to be degrees of difficulty harder to make sense of that new level of professionalism and that new demand on your life. To that point, I want to ask, because we've, we've spoken a lot about the strengths that you've learned from what, what are some of the worst things you've seen professional coaches and leaders do in professional sport, you know, in your experience over the years? What are some of the mistakes that you've seen them make and gone, I definitely don't want to do that? Look, I think it's important that, um, you know, if a team is not playing well, that you don't single out people. Mm -hmm. I think people are allowed <coughs> to have... Jose a, Mourinho. <laughs> people, are, people are allowed to have a bad day. Yeah, yeah. People are allowed to have a bad game. I remember we just come back from the World Cup, um, won the Kosafa and then played mm -hmm. the qualifying match for Olympics against Botswana. And any, any given day, we could have beaten them 10-12-0. Yeah, yeah. Opportunities they created and they just hung in there. It was one-way traffic. Typical playoff, playoff was, game. Yeah. They just hung in there and they hung in there and ran to a penalty shootout and won the penalty shootout. And you get into the dressing room and everybody is just looking everywhere, mm. you know, like just in complete unbelief that that's, that has happened. And all you can say is that, look, we win together, we lose together. Let's try to, you know, uh, watch each other's back. Um, you know, we lost to a team that we should have beaten hands down. Mm -hmm. And the highs of the World Cup is now the biggest disappointment, is the mm. lowest of the low not qualifying. And all you can do is and say is, look, let's not play the blame game here. Let's not point fingers at each other because each and every one of us is part of this team. If we win, we win together. If we lose, we lose together. So, you know, make sure that we take care of each other. I think that is the worst thing that you can do is to single out an individual mm. um, if the team hasn't done well. Because that same individual maybe won you a couple of games, you know, previously. And now it's just having a bad day and missed a sitter or whatever. And mm. you've lost the game and now you jump all over that player. I think that that trust then goes and you don't get the best out of the player. And being able to... Even if the player is not in camping, able to interact with the player, I think it's important that you that you keep that connection, but to a certain extent, because it can become comfortable where the sort of disrespect goes out of the window. But the biggest, the worst thing is doing that and then having a go at other coaches. I think when mm. you have a go at other coaches, we're all in the same space and oh yeah, you know, and in the same space. And today you're on top, tomorrow you're no longer on top. So. You know, having a go at other coaches, I think it's a total disrespect. I think uh, we as coaches, we must look out for each other. It's a very fickle, you know, job. I think the description is higher to be fired. So sure. we've got to give support where we can, um, you know, and, and, and help each other. Because at the end of the day, when we go onto the pitch, there's a lot of rivalry, but we're still in the same space. And if you don't give that support, then who's going to give us that support? And I think that is my most probably two of the, the worst things that, mm, that, that mm. you know, that um, it's in the sport is just having a go at your players in the media and stuff and, and then having a go at other coaches or disrespecting other coaches. C certainly a challenge, I imagine, to rise above that because, as you've mentioned, the sport can be fickle. The fans and the media can be fickle. 
sometimes it's easier to play that game than to step up another level and take the, the moral higher ground. One of the things we mentioned early on is the scrutiny uh, that that is... I mean, every manager and coach and every major sporting code is always going to be under a degree. But there's something about football that you are very much part of the story. Um, how do you deal with that on a personal level? How do you deal with the pressure and the scrutiny? Because I imagine even in you know the deepest challenges of your professional sporting career as a player, this is different. It must feel different. How do, how do you deal with that? What what has prepared you for that? Look. Um I think my parents, especially my dad, with being my biggest critic and my biggest fan, I also have a lot of people that I can bounce off. My assistant coaches become like a sister, to be mm. honest. Mm. Um, the performance analysts, um, very close as well. Been, I've known her for more than 20 years, played wow. with her in the same team as well. Um, so if things are not going okay, you can always bounce off. But you've got to stay true to what you believe in. Mm. And through that, you know, you're never going to make everyone happy. You know, my dad always used to say, the minute you start doing things right, then people start talking. Hmm. It's when you do things wrong that nobody ever says anything. Sure. Nobody ever says anything. And there's always going to be anybody not being happy with who we select, anybody yeah. not being happy with who's in the starting lineup. But yeah. we've got to stay true to what we believe in. And if it starts bringing results, you, you just continue with that, you know. I remember just before the World Cup, my assistant coach, Tina Sonka, said to me, Coach, go off social media. Mm. And I went off completely that I almost haven't gone back on um, just to post one or two things um, over the past couple of months. But I haven't been back on social media except for Instagram. Mm. The negativity on there can really pull you down. Sure. And whether you like it or not, you you think it doesn't affect you, but it does. Oh, no, I can it completely believe it does. It affect you completely. Does, yeah. But when you have people that believe in you, people that you can bounce off, these other coaches, these uh, our technical director at Safa that, you know, we sit down regularly and talk about it. And, and, and if you do believe in what you do and you've honestly made decisions honestly and you can sleep at night without, without any regrets, then, you know, we're on, the, we're on the right track. And that's the only way that, that I deal with that. I'm not going to make everyone happy, but... Uh, you know, I've got to be true, I believe and trust in what in the in the process. Yeah. And so far the process has been good, you know. Going to the Kasafa Cup with a completely new group of players, only six or seven players from last year's team. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, and people, you know, in the media going it's a B team or a C team and all I said to the players, when you get selected for the national team, there's no B team or C yeah. team. Yeah. I said to the players, you know, here's the opportunity now. I remember during the interview and the person said, your players are not the well-knowns in Africa. And I said, but we know them, mm. you know, we know mm. them. And hopefully by the end of the tournament, they'll be as well-known as the ones that have come before. And surely after, you know, the, the end of the tournament, most of them are known on the African, con news, yeah. you know, on the African continent. And that is the, the way we deal with certain things, mm. just to, you know, Get that belief. It's the most important thing is to get that belief and that trust. And, and if you can get that belief and, and, you know, follow the process, and the process is a while. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. There's no team that has gone unbeaten all the time. And sometimes the game that you least expect to lose, you lose. Sure. And it happens sure. to the best of teams. But as how you pick yourself up from that, and I think we've done it consistently, you know, over the last couple of years and, 
if we stick together as a group and if we believe in, in the process and like I said, you have the coaches that you can bounce off as well. And I know my mother's a huge prayer warrior, so she prays all the time. And I think that has been important. And mostly, most important is my faith has helped me stay grounded as well. Yeah, as the standard of football appears to increase almost exponentially all over the world, this idea of unbeatable teams seems to be fading into obscurity. It's just, it almost appears like anybody can beat anybody on the day. And, and especially when it comes to knockout style tournaments, there's just there's so much on the line. And, and that makes, I guess, the sport far more intriguing and interesting for all of us as, as fans. What excites you about the future of African football? As you look to the next decade, you know, we've seen moments of greatness and upsurges of attention. And then at other times also, we just see things that it's sort of the wind getting knocked out of our sails. What, what are you excited about for the next decade? I think the the talent in, in on the continent and in South Africa is just amazing. Extraordinary. Yeah. It is just amazing. I think given the opportunity to play at a high level mm. is the most important thing because, you know, with all due respect, um, Cecil has given us a huge opportunity to play, but the leagues are, you know, you have a, are not the quality that we're mm. looking for. Mm. We need to play at a higher level all the time mm, because mm. when you play international football, our players are not used to the intensity yes. because they don't play at that intensity. If they can regularly play at that intensity, we've shown. I mean, we rank number 53 in countries like the USA want to play us all the time and they're the number one ranked team in mm, the country, mm. in the world. And surely that says something about the quality we have. Yeah, but yeah. you go and you play the USA, which is up here, and you come back and you come back to your league, which is at the bottom. And so it's a pendulum that swings all the time and yes. you've got to get yourself to that certain level when you play another team. And we try and um, assist by sending our training programs um, to get them in a superb shape. But if they can regularly and consistently train each and every day at a certain level and play at that level, then the gap between international football and club football is not that big. Mm, if that mm. can happen, I think we can show the world really, you know, what we're capable of. I think when we went to the World Cup, we hadn't won a single game leading up to that. Mm, mm. But we had played top-ranked countries. We played the US, we played Norway. Um, you know, we went to the Cyprus Cup, we played Sweden, we played the Netherlands, you know, all of those teams. And I felt that that was ideal preparation. We might not have won the game, uh, any of those games. But if we had played, with all due respect, lesser known opponents like Lesotho, we would have beaten, um, you know, we would have beaten, was probably Madagascar, but we would have not have been ready. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the miles, there's no substitute for that kind of experience. If you look at the yeah. miles run and, and at the World Cup, we were on par. Mm. I mm. think the biggest challenge that we faced was things was things was happening much quicker than what we used to yes. when we playing, and that was a big adaptation. You, if you look at the first 45 minutes um, against Spain, it was most probably the best football that we've played. Sure. But sure. we just couldn't sustain that momentum. And yeah. if we can consistently play, I remember, you know, 2016 going to the AFCON and playing against the likes of Nigeria and Cameroon and coming close against them. And when I looked at their teams, 80 to 90% percent of their players played abroad. Mm. I mm. think we had one. You sure. know? Yeah. I think we had one. It was Roxanne Barker who, who played in Iceland. Now we have... Most probably all the 80 to 90 percent of the players that's playing abroad. And I'm hoping that the experiences that they gain, they can bring similar experiences back, Surely, back to the yeah. national team and take us to that next level. Surely. You know, because now they're training consistently 
um, at a high level. They're playing consistently week in, week out at a high level. And if they can bring that with the, with the youth and exuberance that we have and we can mix that youth and experience, I'm really looking forward to, you know, the, when football restarts again. Yeah, so I mean, as a, from a fan's perspective, I think we got a sense of this team's desire to punch above its weight. Uh, you know, and you speak about how the top-ranked teams want to play us because of that same ambition, because of that same tenacity. I think it's very key to the culture you've created, and that can only be embedded through leadership. So thank you for that. I, I want to end really by, by asking you, in proxy, I'm sitting here as a fan and, and representing, I guess, South African fans of football, what do you wish we'd do more of as South African fans and how can we play our part in, in helping you achieve what you're trying to achieve? The most important thing, I think, is support. We're very grateful for the fans that come out to, to, to watch our games. But when you look at other countries, you know, the stadiums are packed. You know, no matter who plays, the stadiums are packed. Whether yeah. it be, yeah. I remember Cameroon in, in 2016 at the uh, FCON. The stadiums were packed. Each Thumping, and every game yeah. was packed. Um, recently, um, Zambia played um, Cameroon and qualified for AFCON. The stadium was packed. Mm, mm. And that is all we ask, that we can get the fans back into the stadiums, you know, um, for, the, for the support. Because without them, we're nothing. You know, without them, we're nothing. And it's the most important, important thing from the fan side. And, and obviously, um, you know, um, giving our players opportunities. And through that opportunities, they become better. Mm. And the team becomes better. Well, Deja, as a fan, um, I want to thank you. I think you're a national treasure. I'm a big fan of yours and your leadership style. I think there's a lot that we can learn in all sectors, in business and in uh, the public sector from the example that you set. So thank you for the effort that you put in. I know there's a cost to that and we all appreciate it. And thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.